Welcome to Necessary Rebels. I'm Sandra. And I'm Kanna. We're two professional women who are passionate about tackling racism and inequalities in life and work. Whether you're in the USA or the UK, change is happening. Do you want to know how to be actively anti-racist? Do you want advice on challenging racism? Do you know how to have those uncomfortable conversations? Then lean in and join us with great tips from professionals on how to be a necessary rebel. Welcome to our guest today, Toral Shah, a nutritional scientist, food and health writer and founder of The Urban Kitchen. Toral was diagnosed with breast cancer at the age of 29, just six years after she supported her mother through this disease. And in 2008, she was diagnosed with breast cancer again. Toral is passionate about combating the lack of diversity in healthcare, and she's been working with several charities and organisations to create more inclusive health promotion campaigns that target different communities. Welcome, Toral. Hello, thank you for having me. It's so nice to have you, Toro. I mean, we met not long ago, didn't we, at the Black Women Rising magazine photo shoot. And we had a a little chat about your diagnosis and your experience. There were lots of women in the the space talking about their experiences as well. Would you like to tell us a little bit about your cancer diagnosis and what you had of experience? So I am somebody that's always worked in or wanted to work around cancer from when I was a really young child. So to be really honest, I'm not a link person. I'm, I went to medical school. I have, have a degree in cell biology. I worked in research. I've got a master's in nutritional medicine. So by the time I was diagnosed with cancer, I probably knew as much as a patient would know, and plus all the scientific aspects too. So, And it was, it was something that's been you know in my family. So my mom's had breast cancer. My aunt's had breast cancer. Loads of my mom's cousins have had breast cancer. So I knew it would affect me at some point, but not quite as young as it did. So when I was 29, I felt a lump. And I kind of watched and waited for a bit, showed my mom. And, you know, to cut a long story short, I was diagnosed with breast cancer at the age of 29 and had a mastectomy. But in that conversation, it took ages for me to be diagnosed. Mm. Why do you think that is? I think in those days, it was quite rare for young women to have breast cancer. The GP that I had, he retired. and He said, look, why don't you see the new female GP? Clearly, he didn't want to see my breast, which is totally fine. So I did, but she just didn't really take on board the urgency and the fact that we had a family history. And even my mom's own surgeon met me and said, don't be ridiculous. So there was this whole thing back in 2005, 2006, 2007, where they just didn't really believe younger people were having breast cancer. Breast cancer was always seen as an older women's disease. A young woman, particularly one that was very fit and healthy and looked healthy, slim, in shape, exercising or eating really well I think they just thought what's she talking about you know it, there's nothing there so if that you know was really frustrating for me because I had to really push to see a specialist to get a diagnosis and I think there were I think it was at least eight weeks in between me sort of finding the lump between actually having um a biopsy to find out that's quite a long time isn't it it is a long time and it's also a worrying time too it's not what you, know, you want for your own self to be waiting and not knowing what's going on and in your like campaigning and your activism, have you had a similar story from other younger cancer survivors and patients? And so many women, so many women, where they're not necessarily taken seriously because they're in their twenties or the early thirties, and that's ridiculous because we know that breast cancer rates are rising, particularly in younger women. Yes, overall 
less than 5% of all cases are in women under 40, but that doesn't mean they're not happening. And they are happening. And, and sadly, if we don't get diagnosed early, then this is when breast cancer can spread and we have poor outcomes. So we really, really, really need to be diagnosed early. And this kind of leads on to particularly, you know, women of colour. We have to go to the GP about 2.1 times more. And I think the stats are at least several times more to see the GP to get a cancer diagnosis, which means we're often diagnosed at a later stage, a more advanced stage, a less treatable stage. So for me, this is incredibly important that we get raise awareness and we're diagnosed earlier so that we have a chance. Yeah. Well, we know that medical racism means that Black women and women of colour are often more neglected, underdiagnosed, untreated, dismissed. And I realise in recent studies, well, probably not recent at all, but they are perceived to have a higher pain threshold than white women. So we know that these things exist out here. Absolutely. And Higher pain threshold is really comes from you know, white supremacy and racism. So we don't even need to, we can move on from that. But, and so there's no science behind that. It's just a thought process. But what we do know, a Macmillan report that was released earlier this year, particularly looking at cancer in London, if you look at the stats, 15.8% fewer black patients felt they were seen as soon as necessary by their GP before going to the hospital, whereas other patients, it was much higher. 13.9% fewer Patients of mixed ethnic backgrounds that their test results explained to them in a way that they understood. 13.3% fewer black patients said that they understood the explanation of what was wrong with them. 12.6% Asian, you know, fewer Asian patients felt positive about the length of time they had to wait for their test results. And so on and so forth. And this just shows that in London, where we actually have a really high proportion, I think 53% of people identify as black Asian ethnic minorities, we're having poor outcomes in cancer because we're not being heard or listened to or things are not being explained in the same way. And what kind of work is being done that you know of that's um, addressing this issue? Because I was also looking at the reports, you know, the NHS is aware of these differences because they do a National Cancer Patient Experience Survey and, you know, reported that they got quite gen- you know generally positive um experience but but poor experience were being reported by people of black asian and and other ethnicity backgrounds and they actually you know they 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 know that something has to be addressed what kind of work is being undertaken to address these differences yeah, the nhs actually don't really get the magnitude of it this work was done by macmillan and the problem is that a lot of hospitals despite the agreement that they need to take ethnicity data, they're not even collecting that data and processing it. We don't even know the experiences of ethnic minorities, who is being diagnosed with what, because they're not collecting that information. And that's something that is problematic because how can we improve things if we don't know where we're actually at? I think, I mean, they were, you're absolutely right. People with cancer, black or Asian, are kind of 25, 30% more likely than those who are white to say their treatment options are only partially or not at all explained or before they started. Yeah, again, that they weren't involved in decisions about their care compared to other people, particularly black people, and the statistical differences in these responses. And we can see that from that survey, but yet they're still not collecting this data and doing anything about it. I mean, some hospitals are doing it brilliantly, and some hospitals just don't even ask you. So then how can you, if you don't even know, if you don't know the ethnicity of your patients, how can you improve things? That's right. I mean, all every one of these stats, we have to remember, is a human being. Every single one of them. 
Do you believe that this, what you've experienced and and knowing everything that you know, that has kind of spurred you to be more active? 100% because I don't want, I was lucky. I'm a lucky person because I'm educated. I work in the field. I know a lot of people. Most women who are diagnosed with cancer, and I'm just going to talk about women because I think, you know, that we're, we're three women sitting here. Um, it's a scary time. Not everyone has the confidence or the voice or the, um, to, to, you know, even to understand, to ask the right questions. So then they're never going to get the same treatment options if they don't understand what's happening. Think about even just those with language barriers or with people where culturally there's so much stigma with cancer so they don't even talk about it. They don't know they can take a friend or a family member or somebody else with them. Yeah, you know, I think just this, and they don't know to check their breasts or, you know, whatever part of their body that we're talking about with cancer. I'm just talking about breast cancer just because I'm very passionate about breast cancer and I've got more statistics for that. But if you don't know to check your breasts or your bowel and to check whether, you know, or whatever it might be, just if you've got stomach ache, that it could be like, you know, ovarian or uterine cancer, then what are you going to do? Yeah. And a lot of people um, would say, what about screening? You know, like screening is a good way to pick people up. But actually, there's data that was reported by Macmillan, not collected by them, but they reported a study that looked at screening over 15 years. And it actually said the uptake of cancer screening invitations is lower in people from black and minority ethnic groups than people from the white population. So we can't just rely on screening. It's like you're saying, people have to have an awareness know what kind of questions to ask and when they do get there that information has to be accessible and something that again was reported in the NHS England videos is that you have to make the information inclusive and diverse and communication is essential things just basic things like getting an interpreter when you need interpreters so people fully understand what's being explained to them and asked of them because otherwise people are left in the dark and lots of people are reporting that that they don't necessarily feel like they get all of the information or some of the information is dumbed down I think is what some of the people on those videos were saying was like oh people were surprised that I was asking certain questions they were looking at me like what why are you asking that question or there was one lady that reported that the doctor was rolling their eyes when she and her husband were asking questions and she felt like she'd been judged before they really knew anything about her and her husband. Well, this is what people are experiencing when they go. So so if you are a, a woman of color and you have already experienced this, when something else happens, you're less likely to go because you've already experienced this microaggression or discrimination against you, you're less likely to now go. So what this means for women of color, it means we've got to fight hard, we've got to advocate for ourselves in the same way we advocate for others. And we've got to listen to our bodies. And we've got to go knock down the doors in order for us to be heard. And that's that's what we have to do. We know that's what we have to do. That's what I've had to do. And that's what other women of color have told me they have had to do. They've had to be loud. You know, I also got to remember that so many black Asian ethnic minority people feel like they're unable to discuss anything more with their GPs and hospitals beyond their immediate physical needs. They're not talking about their mental health, their recovery, they're not talking about like diet, exercise, all of those things. There's a real lack of ease or willingness to discuss the cancer with other people because of the stigma in the community, you know, and the fact that they're more likely to think they would die. And so we have to really 
look at education, but part of this is with the charities and organizations, is they often use heteronormative, cisgender, slim white women, whether they're middle-aged or younger or whatever it is. If they're not using people of different body shapes and sizes and sexualities and genders, I mean, presenting in different ways, then how are people going to know that that can affect them? If they're not seen, if they don't see themselves in the campaigns, how do they get included? You're absolutely right. And it's it's so important what you're saying about actually listening and seeing what people want and and what people's beliefs are because a lot of the the reading that I was looking at was talking about like you say like um, having higher incidence of depressive symptoms mental health problems following a recent cancer diagnosis compared to white British patients so your your mental health needs need to be addressed as much as your physical health needs and also there's a lack um, sometimes of taking into account cultural factors such as fear and stigma and kind of religious needs. And it's important to remember that that some cancer treatment needs to be um, holistic and, and looking at end of life and palliation and actually uptake of palliative services is lower in BME communities. And actually, some people would argue that you need to start thinking about your um, future wishes and your future medical wishes fairly early in your life, like around middle age. But it is a cultural thing. Like if we're not actually getting that message to people, then then, you know, end of life comes and that conversation becomes really stressful. People in the family are like, I don't, I don't agree with this. Or, you know, there's a lot of conflict around that. So sometimes you may not have that conversation if it isn't discussed early enough and if it isn't kind of like supported properly. And I think it is really important for um, people to address end of life holistic needs. You know, what do people want for their treatment and the rest of their lives is, is really, really important to address. Um, and I just wanted to kind of ask you, what kind of differences do you think you need to see? Like you've discussed the data so much and the discrepancies and the inequalities, but what kind of things do you think need to happen now to affect that change? So all campaigns, whether they're public health campaigns or whether they're from charities or organisations, need to uh, have a much more diverse group of people don't have cancer so people know it can affect them they need to make sure it's in different languages it's presented in different ways they need to educate people on checking their breasts and their bowels or their poo or whatever it is they need to just be educated but then also is look at the culture difference so one of the conversations i've been having with a couple of cancer organizations is so people have been diagnosed but we haven't looked at how we can support them through and beyond treatment with different diets and different exercise and stuff because we haven't looked at their own cultural needs. We need to make sure that GPs, public health institutions are actually really looking at who is our population, what are we doing, how are we looking after them, how are we managing them, do we have the right information or is this not really you know, relevant necessarily, are we just guessing, that kind of more research. We need to invite more people of colour to research trials because it's a very low uptake of research trials. Have you seen there, there's a new book that came out by a, a black male student doctor called Mind the Gap, where he did a, a study because he found that in the in medical school that they were all taught lots of the kind of diseases that show up on skin tone were all kind of practiced on white skin tones. So he's produced this leaflet where you get all the different shades of black in the leaflet. But this this happened in 2020. Are you telling me no one thought to do this before now? That's incredible. And the NHS, I mean, there's a lot of ethnic minorities who, you know, work within the NHS as doctors, nurses, whatever. 
yet they still weren't able to have information that would pertain to their ethnic group. Again, medical school needs to change too. We need to change our kind of the way we teach future doctors and future nurses. There's a whole system change. I mean, we've got a lot of work to do here. We're only just scraping the surface, but there is there's lots that need to be changed within the system. Um, I've also been hearing from women who've been talking about their experiences, and they say that when they are experiencing kind of discrimination within the healthcare system, they're scared to challenge in case it is backfired on the care they then receive. What kind of advice would you give to those women? I would say advocate for yourself. If you're not sure and you don't feel clear about asking for that information or asking to be supported in a way and just pushing back, Take somebody potentially who may be able to, who might be more confident at speaking. And that might be, you can ask for maybe one of your breast, any one of your cancer nurses. You could ask for someone from a patient support group. You can ask for any of these people. Because I do think we know our own bodies better than anybody else. We might not be the expert in the cancer or the treatment, but we do know our own bodies better. And I think this is where we have to push back. You know, I've pushed back on something, admittedly, you know, with a lot of knowledge, but still, because I know that that's not going to be right for my mental health as well as my physical health. So if my mental health is going to be really poor, but I can continue the treatment and I'm miserable as hell and I don't want to do anything, what's the point? And I think these are the kind of conversations. We just need to be a lot more open. Also, side effects. People do not talk about the side effects of treatments, different types of treatments. And I think we need to do that. And women are just supposed to suck it up. I went to a conference about younger women and breast cancer and every single lecturer ended it with saying, oh, young women don't take the hormone treatment, they don't do it. And I kept putting my hand up every single time. I was saying, well, the reason being, because you're not helping us with the side effects. Every time we bring them up, you actually just don't do anything. I mean, and there are loads of things that can be done. The problem is that you're not really, because it's a female thing, you're not looking into it further. And actually, I was so lucky this time because I've got a new GP who is absolutely fantastic. And part of the treatment I have for breast cancer is a hormone treatment and it gives you menopausal side effects. And I really suffered previously, so I stopped taking it. And so she had so many ideas this time, which no one at the hospital has even tried. And And I did say that to them. I said, like, no one's actually ever shared this information with me. I could do this or this or this. It's nice to hear you had a good, like, somebody in the system who was, like, really focused on what you were kind of experiencing and trying to help with those symptoms. There are people, and like, you know, I'm my medical team at the Royal Marsden is phenomenal, like, absolutely phenomenal, and they really, I'm really involved in my treatment. But again, you see, I'm probably not the average patient, so I think it's slightly different too. And Royal Marsden is a specialist cancer hospital, so there's obviously, you know, different types of people involved. And for me, I'm very kind of well looked after, but there's still issues. And something I saw was women in particular going through treatment were like not offered wigs that were appropriate to their like ethnic type. They weren't offered dressings that were uh, or stockings that were appropriate for their skin color. Yeah, you know, some of these things have taken longer to create than others. So where is the hold up? Because we know that things can be made easily now to order with you know the electronic and digital design. So why why is it taking so long? That's yeah, that's really important. Is there anything else that you would like to raise today? So I think we, when we think about health inequalities, it's not just about ethnicity. We've also got to look at the socioeconomic aspect of this. And we know that social deprivation, lack of education, all of those things also impact people's awareness of cancer. So it's not even necessarily 
that it's the ethnicity. It's also just the socioeconomic deprivation. So, for example, I live in Southwark. And in Southwark, there's really rich areas and really poor areas. And there's a bus route called the number 78. And if you go from the beginning to the end, you know, it gets poorer and poorer and poorer. And they're poorer outcomes. So we haven't, the government is now focusing on obesity for COVID and things like that. But it has not approach the fact that we're the socioeconomic impact of our lives so for example they're not they're asking us all to exercise more but they haven't looked at you know how do people fit in if they're doing one two three jobs because they need to you know to pay the bills what if they've got no childcare? what if they can't find something that's culturally appropriate for them what if they're trying to buy food but you know they don't have enough cooking they're, they're cooking on a in a bedsit with one ring what if the fact that we can buy 12 bags of crisps for like two pounds, yeah, a punnet of grapes is a two pounds as well. Do you see what I mean? Exactly. Yeah, totally. One last thing before um, we finish is there's some research published in the Lancet Oncology Journal predicting delays in cancer diagnosis due to COVID and that there could be thousands of excess deaths in the UK within a year. Um, do you know anything about that? Is there anything... Yeah, absolutely. So I think, I mean, the Panorama episode on this was fascinating. But, you know, if we extrapolate out from the data, just from the people that weren't diagnosed, weren't able to go to screening, weren't able to go to biopsy, weren't able to go to appointments, at least 7,000 people will lose their life due to cancer. And there might be 35,000 extra cases. This is just in the UK alone. Forget the United States. And part of it, you know, even now, it's now September, so many appointments are not being seen. People are not being seen in person. So this is going to continue and the numbers just increase. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Do you know of any resources that you could point people to, like any charities that you've worked with, for example, that have specific information for people who think, oh, you know, I don't know much about cancer symptoms. What should I be looking for? Is there information in different languages anywhere or anything that you know of? So Cancer Research UK and like Breast Cancer Now, people like that, actually they have they have got translated information and they've got really good information on their websites. So is there a lot of, depending on where your um, local borough is too, they often have a lot of these leaflets translated into lots of different languages appropriate to the community that lives there. So it really, really depends. I can't talk about every cancer because there's so many different types of cancer. There's so many you know, different things, signs to look out for. But the, my key is know your own body. Know what's normal for you because what's normal for you and then so if something changes, you know that that's important because that might be totally different for somebody else. For me, I know, like, let's just say a period, for example. I know my cycle is 31 days and that's, you know, and if it changes, then I know there's a problem and then I teach someone about it. But again, like until we can educate and maybe we can talk about cancer and menopause and death and all of these things in school more and really start these conversations younger and earlier in life. So people become accustomed to having these conversations. And I think you were talking earlier about um, death and like these kind of things. So one of the things I've done with my parents is we've talked about like, their death wishes and what they want and funerals and we've tried to really normalise it. And both my parents want to donate their bodies to science. I was like, okay. So, oh yeah, things like that. But you know, that's the one guarantee life is that we're all going to die. Why do we not talk about death? And while we're encouraging people to to do that, it, it's also good for us to encourage women, especially right now, um, to please go to your GPs. If you're worried about anything, don't be afraid. Don't let COVID put you off going 
to the to your hospital appointments. I had a breast exam recently and there was no one there but me in the in the whole of the room, the hospital room where I normally have to wait an hour. When I spoke to the nurse there, she said lots of women are canceling their appointments because they're worried about COVID. And in fact, the they've made the hospital very, very safe for people to go in and have their exams, have their scans, um, have your pap smears. Go to the doctor. Go to your hospital appointments. Don't be afraid to go. They, the hospitals are set up for you to be safe. So do attend your appointments at this particular time. It's always nice talking to you. I mean... It's like fire, you know, it's like, um, it is, it is, it's like, it's just, you just, it's just so much information. You are like, uh, you know, you're, you're like the encyclopedia of, of, uh, of breast cancer. And like, I just so appreciate talking to you. I know our listeners will appreciate listening to what you've had to say. And it's just, and, and, and it's, and I love to hear about how passionate you are about this work. And I know you're going to stay loud. I already know you're going to stay loud. You know, there are things people need to hear, which can be tough for some, but I hope it has stirred something inside our listeners to be a part of the change that needs to happen, the necessary change. So thank you so much, Doral, for, for being our guest today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful. Yeah, thank you on behalf of everyone. And we wish you all the best with everything that you're doing. It's all really, really important. And we hope that it will all lead to change, basically. That's what we all want to see. Thank you so much. You can find Necessary Rebels on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And on Instagram at Necessary underscore Rebels underscore pod. We hope you've enjoyed listening to Necessary Rebels. This was an II Studios production. We'll see you for the next episode. Thank you for listening. <laughs>